Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Professor Marcus Dusotoy, The Creativity Code, How AI is Learning to Write, Paint and Think. So, so, you know, at the moment we're all reading more and more stories about the impact that artificial intelligence is going to have on our society. Lots of kind of fear about all the jobs that are going to go. Um, is there anything going to be left for us to do? Many people feel like, well, yeah, surely being creative is something that is uniquely human, that a, a piece of code can't be creative. And um, actually, you know, my own subject of mathematics, that's often a subject that people feel, well, surely that's something that would be very easily done by a computer. But mathematics isn't about calculations. Mathematics is something so much more. And so I've always used creativity as my kind of protective shield against the idea that artificial intelligence could really do mathematics. Uh, actually, there was a moment in the 90s when a lot of people said, surely your job is under threat, because this is when a piece of artificial intelligence was able to play chess at such a high level that it beat humans. And a lot of people compared doing mathematics to like playing a game of chess because they're kind of logical moves. Uh, but I never I really felt that chess captured that kind of intuitive feel. And there was always another game that I always thought was much closer to doing mathematics. A game that you'll find played much more often in a mathematician's common room than chess, which is the ancient game of Go. Uh, this is a Chinese game played on a 19 by 19 grid. Uh, you put black and white stones down, uh, you try and surround your opponent's territory before they surround yours. And a lot of people, when they play this game, uh, talk about intuitive feel for a, a move. There's a lot of pattern recognition going on. And actually that's what mathematics is about. It's about trying to spot uh, kind of underlying patterns in the kind of chaos around us. And many Go players say, well, I'm not quite sure I can tell you why I'm making these moves. And in that case, that's a very hard thing to code up because, you know, if you don't know why you're making the moves, how can you write an algorithm to do that? And so it was always regarded as a game that would take many, many decades before uh, anyone would be able to code this up. But a few years ago, something changed in the world of algorithms, code, and artificial intelligence. And it's kind of what sparked this journey that I've been on, which um, culminated in this book that I wrote, The Creativity Code. In the past, you see, you would have to write code in a very sort of top-down manner. You would have to know what you were doing in order to be able to tell a machine to be able to do the thing. But in the last few years, a different sort of code has emerged which has been incredibly successful. And this is something you've probably heard of, deep learning, machine learning, code written in a very uh, bottom-up manner. Code written in a way that it can learn and adapt and change as it interacts with new data. So actually the code isn't terribly good to start with, but as it makes mistakes, as we do, we learn from our mistakes as humans, and we kind of update our own bit of code in our brain, this code is working in a very similar way. There was a company in London, which is DeepMind, which decided that they would take the challenge of Go and see whether they could get a bit of code to learn how to play by just playing the game, failing, seeing that the moves didn't work, and then updating its code to try and play in a better way because it saw how its opponent was playing. 
So it learned, first of all, in a lot of human games, it learned a lot about how we play, and then it actually started creating synthetic games. It started playing itself. It would have different versions of itself, and it would see which version was better coded to be able to win the game. And uh, DeepMind uh, believed that they'd actually managed to train this thing to such a high level that they could challenge the world's best, which is uh, Lisa Doll, Korean player. But Lisa Doll was totally dismissive of any code that get anywhere near being able to beat him. No code in the past had been able to play this game at all uh, well, as I said. They played over five games in 2016, uh, and uh, Lisa Doll came out the other end of this in complete shock. He lost 4-1. Now, we're quite used to machines being better at things than humans. What was really surprising was the way this piece of code started to play. It wasn't just playing very well, it was playing in a completely new, creative way. And this is something that I observed in uh, the second game that was played. So, the first game, I actually watched these uh, games obsessively live on YouTube because I realised that I was under threat as a mathematician. If this thing could play Go, and that was the thing I was using as the protective shield, then maybe I was next. So, so I, I watched these in a state of existential crisis. Uh, and so the first game was kind of interesting because Lisa Dole thought, okay, if I play in a very unconventional way, the code is learnt on the way humans play, so it won't be able to cope. But actually it was able to cope, and uh, Lisa Dole wasn't at his best because he wasn't playing his natural game. So the second game, he decided to play his straight game. Uh, on move 36, Lisa Dole was playing white. So he asked a human player to play uh, Blackstone on uh, the fifth row in from the edge. And I, I, uh, this is move 37, now a very famous move in this game. At this moment, I remember all the commentators gasping and going, wow, made a huge mistake. Early on in the game, your Go Master teaches you that you should only really play on the first four rows in from the edge. That this is where the early kind of uh, competition for territory goes on, and who will control the, the space as you move in. And if you play on the fifth row, your Go Master will say that's a very weak move because you're not fighting over that bit of territory yet. And so all of the commentators said, well, okay, Lisa Dole should be able to win the game from now. As the game goes on, uh, there's more and more competition for territory building up from the bottom right-hand corner of the board. And it turns out, very late on in the game, the person who controlled that whole territory was the one who had that stone put down at move 37. So uh, uh, AlphaGo managed to control that whole area and won the game because of that move so early on um, in move 37. For me, this was a really exciting moment because it wasn't just playing the game how we play it at a very high level, it was playing the game in a completely new way. And for me, this kind of passed three tests that I'm looking for uh, when I think about something being creative. Actually, these three tests I learned from philosopher Margaret Bowden. She's been thinking for a long while what these, what she calls tin cans, might be able to do. Um, and she has a nice working definition, which I think is useful for us this evening for what we might call creative. Um, so she said it should be something new, and that's very objective, we can judge novelty quite objectively, but it should also be surprising and have value. Now surprise and value are much more subjective, they will vary across time periods, across the, the globe, from one person to another. So this will be interesting challenge for code going forward, that it's going to have to learn something about what we as humans find surprising and have value. Now what's lovely in the confines of a game, it certainly passed the surprise test because that gasp that you had from the commentators um, was a very unconventional move. 
And a game is a very nice place to be able to judge value because that move ultimately won AlphaGo the game. So this, I think, was an exciting moment where we saw code starting to, to do unexpected things, things that weren't put into the code in the first place. It had come out of the learning process and it really showed us how to play this game in a completely new way. Now, actually, this is an image which comes up quite often in the book, which is, uh, as humans, we think we found the best way to do something, um, but then often the artificial intelligence is helping us to kind of shift off this peak that we got stuck on and reveal to us, kind of uh, the clear the fog around this peak and say, actually, this isn't the highest. There's another higher place, more optimal way to play this game. This is one of the very exciting things, I think, about the way that AI is actually starting to interact with the creative process is that I think actually as humans, what happens is we tend to start behaving very much like machines. We get stuck in particular ways of thinking, certainly creatively, um, you know, particular ways of playing an instrument or uh, painting or even mathematically, certain ways of thinking. What I've seen in this book is lots of wonderful stories where the, the artificial intelligence is helping us to stop behaving like machines and weirdly actually find new ways to, to be creative as humans again. And that's what we've seen in Go, is that there's a new way to play this game that the AI has taught us. So I thought this was very exciting and it sort of started me on this journey. Okay, if it can be creative in a game, where else can it be creative? So part of the story of the book is about my own subject of mathematics. But uh, because mathematics, I always feel, has a kind of creative, artistic side to it, I've also taken a journey through the kind of creative arts to see how creative can AI be in other realms of art. And in fact, I'm not the first to think about the, the, the idea that code might be able to create artistic things. One of the first coders in history, Ada Lovelace, she went to see Babbage's Extraordinary Machine, which did lots of amazing calculations, but she was already speculating on, well, you could write instructions for it to do more interesting things, and, and those instructions that she started to write down we now regard as the first idea of code. And she was already speculating that, well, maybe the engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music. But she offered a word of caution. She wrote, it is desirable to guard against the possibility of exaggerated ideas that might arise as the powers of the analytic engine. It has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we order it to perform. And I think that's what people have done in the past. You know, it's not the code that's being creative. It's the human who wrote the code that is the, the creative one. But that's what I think has changed over these last few years with machine learning, because now we're writing code which then interacts with lots of data, maybe games of Go, or maybe um, pictures or music, and it learns and it changes and it re-parameterizes itself. So it, it evolves just like a child does by interacting with new inputs that will update its brain and be able to do new things. I mean, we become artistic by interacting with the art of the past and then going into the new. So if the code is changing, well, maybe it's doing things that uh, we haven't told it to do. So maybe this new code can actually break this idea of uh, Ada Lovelace's that it can't originate anything. So you might have heard of something called the Turing test, which is can a computer pass itself off in inter interaction online, such that in a conversation you don't know the difference between the human or the computer. So there's now something called the Lovelace test, whether a machine 
can originate a creative work of art such that the process is repeatable. So it shouldn't be a result of hardware error or some randomness from the outside. The code sort of knows what it's doing and could do it again. But the challenge is that the programmer originally wrote the code um, is unable to explain how the algorithm produced its output because the code has evolved so far that the uh, person who wrote the code doesn't actually know how it's doing it anymore. Well, uh, so I looked at the whole range of creative arts and the one I started with, and it's the one where machine learning has been sort of most successful over the last few years, which is visual arts. We had amazing success in creating algorithms now which can, you know, you can give it a picture and it will tell you what is in that picture. Now that, in the past, was almost an impossible task. But now with this learning process where you give it lots of pictures and uh, tell the thing, well this is a cat and this is a dog, if it gets it wrong it starts to produce new questions that it can ask a picture which will get it right the next time round. So by the end of the learning process this code is com so complex yet is incredibly good at recognising things in images. Um, so there will be some interesting art projects um, using machine learning. And so here's your first challenge, because here's an art project where a group of machine learners in Holland decided that they would take a very famous artist, uh, Rembrandt. Rembrandt has a very particular style of painting. His use of light is very special. It's, somehow you'll always be able to recognise something in the Rembrandt school. Well, if you can do that, maybe machine learning can pick out those qualities which distinguish a Rembrandt from any other artist and be able to create something which has those characteristics. Um, so one of these paintings, and I'm now going to send these to your phone, I want you to press on the image which you think is artificial. Uh, so well, I'll, I'll let you carry on trying to do that, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about this, because what the software did was to take a lot of the proportions of the images. In fact, they got a Rembrandt expert in Holland who actually hated the idea of this project, um, was determined to be able to sniff out immediately which one was the wrong one. And uh, the only criticism that he could come up with was that the style of paint on the canvas was 20 years earlier than the actual style of the portrait. So the, the machine learning group felt they'd done pretty well if that was the only thing they could be criticised for. So, it was the one on the left, which was the artificial one. Uh, so yes, that, but I think it's doing a pretty good job. You were pretty thrown. And, and you might say, well, you know, what is the point of, of that? We've got great Rembrandts. In fact, um, one of my favourite art critics in The Guardian, Jonathan Jones, uh, he hates anything to do with artificial intelligence. Uh, and he wrote, what a horrible tasteless, insensitive and soulless travesty of all that is created in human nature when technology is used for things it should never be used for. Um, but I, I, you know, in some ways I think he has a point, you know, what's, we don't want pastiche, we want to have artificial intelligence taking us somewhere excitingly new. But even looking at the art of the past, the interesting thing is machine learning can give us new insights into to old art. For example, uh, Jackson Pollock's paintings. What makes them so special? You know, surely anyone can make up Jackson Pollock, just fit paint around. But actually there is something very special, uh, and this was only picked out by mathematical algorithmic analysis of these paintings. It was uh, shown that actually he's creating a sort of kind of fractal geometry, and this is a result of his very special painting style. He had very bad balance and he used to be very drunk. And so when he was painting, he would just sort of, uh, instead of just flicking paint around like we would, like it was sort of like a conventional pendulum. His pendulum was moving backwards and forwards, and so it was creating a chaotic dynamic system, which the geometry of that is a fractal. And we've seen that because of a kind of algorithmic 
analysis of these things. So you can get new insights into old masters. But what I want is something going into the new. I want the AI to, to start pushing us creatively, uh, visually, not just creating old Rembrandts. Um, so here's your next challenge. Four of these paintings were done by a human. Four of these paintings were done by a piece of code. I'm going to send these to your phones now. Should we have a look and see? It's a hard choice. A hard choice? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they're all... I agree, I think this is a hard one. I don't think the last one is hard. Okay, so um, uh, you're going for a sort of two, two to one split. So this time it was the ones on the right. So very good, you sniffed out that they were not human. In fact, these paintings were shown at Basel Art Fair and people weren't told anything about them. They were asked for their emotional response to these. The artificial ones got a higher emotional response from the audience. And when they were told they were created by artificial intelligence and code, many people felt cheated. And it's an interesting response because, you know, why do we feel cheated? Because, well, actually, we sort of feel we want our art to be connecting us as humans. Uh, a sort of language to access the way somebody else is feeling about the world, seeing the world. And so if there's artificial intelligence involved, you haven't got that communication going on, you feel cheated. But if I told you a joke and you all laughed at the joke and then I say the joke's being written by artificial intelligence, um, does that invalidate your laughter? I don't think it does. Um, and there's another point here, which is the algorithm which created this um, learnt on our art. It, it took our art as its data set, and our art is full of an emotional world going on inside it, so it's not crazy that if it's learning from that, it might create something which will give a, an emotional response. But there's another interesting thing, which is the way that this was created, because this wasn't just one algorithm, it was actually two algorithms working in kind of a competition against each other, a bit like a game. So this is something called a um, creative adversarial network. And one algorithm basically learns about all of the art of the past, whilst 1,500 years, it learns particular styles, it sort of becomes an art historian. If you gave it a painting, it'd be able to say, oh, that's Cubist. Uh, but then, what it's tasked with is creating something which doesn't fit into any of those styles. So it learns the styles and had to break and make something which doesn't uh, satisfy the styles. But it can't make something too wild, so it knows um, through all of the data what art is, in a way. What, what is acceptable as art. So it can't go too far, um, such that the thing just won't be recognised as art. So it's trying to make something new. And then the second algorithm is a discriminator algorithm, and it takes the output and says, no, I still recognise that as a particular style. You haven't moved far enough, or else says, wow, no, you, this, this isn't just in the parameter space of what we regard as art. So, and the, the two in tandem work together. I think this really captures quite a lot about how people talk about the creative process working as an artist. Um, here's Paul Valéry, he's a French poet, uh, saying it takes two to invent anything. The one makes up combinations and the other one chooses. And I think that idea of, you know, sort of being explosively creative but then being critical of what you're doing is a very important component of how we are work as creative artists. Um, I, I have this in my own mathematics. I work with a collaborator in Germany and we, we sort of play like two sides of the algorithm. So I, I'm the kind of bubbly creative one trying things out and he's the discriminator sort of knocking them down. And now I have a reverse role with somebody in the Middle East. So I certainly recognise that it, this kind of algorithm has captured the way we kind of work creatively. But weirdly, the most interesting story I saw in the visual arts, it's not art that I think is particularly uh, amazing, um, but I think it's a really interesting story for the role that computer art might play in helping us to understand how the code is working.
So, for example, when we give Google recognition software a picture, it tells us what is in the picture, but what is it really seeing? How does it see the world? So um, what Google did was kind of reverse the process. They said, okay, we're gonna give you a picture which hardly has anything in it, and we want you to just accentuate anything that you see there. A bit like looking at the clouds in the sky and saying, oh, I, that looks a bit like an agile rabbit jumping across the... Um, <laughs> and weirdly, this is what appeared um, out of uh, that kind of feedback loop. And it tells us something a little bit about how, how this visual recognition software has learned, because it's been given lots of images of animals, lots of faces, lots of things with eyes, lots of machines, and so we start to see kind of animals appearing inside this. And this is pretty sort of weird kitsch art, I know these interesting art, but I think it helps us to understand something about the way this algorithm is working. Because the code has become so complex, we don't know really how it's making its decisions. And it can also help us to sniff out bad learning. Here's a random image that it was given, and it, in this random image, it started to see dumbbells appearing. So it started accentuating the dumbbells, but weirdly, every dumbbell had an arm. Why? Because it had never seen a dumbbell which wasn't being held by a human being. It thought it was a part, an extension of our anatomy. And this is really important going forward, because many people think that algorithms and code is very neutral, sort of a bit of mathematics, so it can't be biased. But if the data we're giving it is biased in some way, then that, that bias can start to appear in the code. I did an event uh, last year at Wired with a roboticist from MIT Media Lab, and she told me this story about how she had some robots delivered to her with some re visual recognition software to be able to engage with people, yet when she stood in front of these robots, they just blanked her. She couldn't get them to react um, until she put a white mask on. She was a black scientist, and she realized it had only been given pictures of white male faces in order to train on. So it didn't even know about uh, black faces. And so she started something called the Algorithmic Justice League, really trying to examine code to make sure that there aren't these uh, bad sort of biases uh, appearing inside there. And I think this is why this is an important project, because somehow the art that it's producing is doing exactly what we hope art should do, which is helping us to see how another person sees the world. And, you know, as Marshall McLuhan once wrote, he said, art is our distant early warning system that can always be relied on to tell the old culture, which is all of us, uh, what is beginning to happen to it. So I think this is why the art of code might actually be a very powerful tool in helping us to understand what sort of code we're beginning to, to, to um, have uh, sort of pushing and pulling us around. So uh, that's the visual world. What about music? Well, lots of interesting stories in music. Um, just going to pick out one which I thought was kind of interesting because it's about this idea of pushing us out of our comfort zone. This is Bernard Lulat, who's a jazz musician. There was a piece of software called the Jazz Continuator that learned on his particular style of playing. He, after playing with this thing, he said, the system shows me ideas I could have developed, but that would have taken me years to actually develop. It is years ahead of me. Yet everything it plays is unquestionably me. So this is what's interesting. The AI has learnt on his sound world, but has illustrated to him that his sound world is so much richer and bigger than what he's actually playing. There are so many more things that he could do with that. So very interesting stories of uh, uh, music in the book. But the place where I found AI having most difficulty was in the written word, interestingly. 
Actually, poetry is one of the first places that AI started experimenting with trying to, to be creative. But poetry is a, a nice place for a, an algorithm to start because it's a kind of got a pattern to it, a particular structure, their small form. Your creativity as a reader is kind of called on. So my next challenges for you are three poems. Can you tell which of these poems are created by a piece of code and which of the poems are created by a human? The first poem, uh, Mortal my mate, bearing my rock a heart, warm beat with cold beat company, shall I earlier or you fail at our force and lie the ruins of rifled once a world of art? Uh, three quarters of you thinking that that's a robot. Here's your second one. Magazine fired, non-dignified, as heads fatty implied, internalized violence of frozen helplessness, of white Okay, so um, a little confused, not quite sure, but the majority now going for human. Uh, let's go to your last one. Imagine now the dark smoke, awakened to fly all these years to another day. Notions of tangled trees, the other side of water. Um, okay, so you're going for a code again. Uh, literally, also the first one you thought was a computer. Uh, poor old Gerald Mandy Hopkins has been turning in his grave that you all thought that he was being churned out. But, uh, you know, I must say, uh, I, I chose Gerald Mandy Hopkins because I've never understood any poem that he's ever written. So the second one you thought was human. Yeah, well done, it was a human. This is an interesting young Australian poet, Mez Breeze, who is very interested in the idea that code has a kind of poetry to it. Uh, that's two humans, so the last one you did sniff out um, is indeed uh, a bit of code written by uh, Ray Kurzweil, and he trained this thing, the cybernetic poet. He gave this um, piece of code a lot of Geats, Yeats, Eliot, uh, Tennyson. So poetry, yeah, re reasonably successful. I think it's quite good on short, on short form prose, but if it starts to try to do something a bit bigger, algorithms really start to have difficulty. There was a, actually a group in America uh, that were very interested in Harry Potter. They decided they wanted an eighth volume. So seven volumes of Harry Potter to train on. And it started off pretty well. Um, actually, I love the title of this book. It's called um, uh, Harry Potter and the Portrait of What Looked Like a Large Pile of Ash. <laughs> Great title. Um, but it started off pretty well. Um, leathery sheets of rain lashed at Harry's ghost as he walked across the grounds towards the castle. It's a lovely image, leathery sheets of rain. I don't think I would ever come up with such an interesting image. But then it started to lose the plot of it. Ron was standing there and doing a kind of frenzied tap toss. Um, he saw Harry and immediately began to eat Hermione's family. So after a while, this thing is quite good at generating short-term. In fact, there are 350 words of this book, which I didn't write, um, that are written by an algorithm. I asked it to tell me a part of the story, and still today, nobody has identified those 350 words. Not even my editor at Fourth Estate, um, which I find vaguely depressing. That, uh, you know, I thought it was bloody obvious, which um, bits. Um, but beyond that kind of short-term, it just loses the plot. Um, it, it doesn't really know where it's going. And I think we have to ask, you know, why do we create art? It's because we want to communicate something about our inner world. And at the moment, a computer just doesn't have an inner world. I would say, you know, art is probably our best um, answer at the moment to trying to sniff out one of the great scientific problems, which is the hard problem of consciousness. Trying to understand whether something else is conscious and what it feels like to be that conscious human being. But that's why I think that as this bit of code gets more and more sophisticated, I think there will be a moment when my iPhone will become conscious. You know, it will suddenly say, iPhone think, therefore iPhone am. Uh, and, and you know, at some point we will have to ask the question, is this actually just a simulation or is something really shifted here? 
So I think art will be our best uh, kind of investigation of what, it, what is going on there. As Wittgenstein says, if a lion could speak, we're not going to be able to understand him. This has got such a different world of association. And when artificial intelligence becomes conscious, which I think it will, but it will take a long time, it will be a very different consciousness to us. And it will be, I think, the art it will create, the stories that we want to tell, which will be our best tool to actually finding out what it might be like to be a piece of artificial intelligence. Uh, so, yes, uh, some questions from, from the audience. In your example of the written words, there is no correct outcome. You can't analyse all the books in existence and say, this is something good, this is something bad. I think the, the challenge here is that, and this is true for any artist actually, is you, you, know, you create something, you go into the new, and then you want a response to see. And that is how value will be judged. So it's not winning a game, but it will be uh, asking us to say, yeah, that's really, that's exciting. I, I'm, I'm kind of moved by that. One of the challenges is, you know, great art at its time is generally not recognised. And it's only later that the value is kind of seen in, in a particular move. So it'll be very striking to see things that we're sort of throwing away now as something we're not interested in, whether later on that will be something that future generations um, might find interesting. It seems to me that human creativity comes from imperfect knowledge. We haven't read all the books, seen all the pictures, uh, all the art, all the data, and, and somewhat imperfect interpretation. You're absolutely right, this idea you know, humans, we are limited in the amount of stuff that we can encounter. I think I did a calculation that over my lifetime, uh, I will probably only read 3,000 books. And that's a minute amount. Yet a, an algorithm can read the whole of the Bodleian Library in Oxford in, in an afternoon. And in the Bodleian, there are 19th century novels that haven't been read for a century, probably. The AI will perhaps pick out a trend of 19th century novel that didn't resonate then, but now perhaps is exciting. We, we want artificial intelligence not to be an artificial version of us. I, I like translating AI as augmented intelligence or, or additional intelligence, doing something different. Thank you very much.